VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Addiction plays hardball. He would hit me with these verbal attacks. I just said to him, I love you so much. You're such an amazing person. I can't take this ride anymore. It was the fact that dad made that sentiment and broke down. And years later, he told me it had a huge impact on him. Sometimes doing what's right for your loved one is the hardest thing to do. Karen is that right thing. Visit caron.org slash lost. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Several years ago, the American Psychological Association issued a set of guidelines for psychologists working with boys and men. Guideline number one says, psychologists strive to recognize that masculinities are constructed based on social, cultural, and contextual norms. Guideline number three says, psychologists understand the impact of power, privilege, and sexism on the development of boys and men and on the relationships with others. My guest says that these guidelines miss the mark and are just one indicator of the way in which the world of psychology misunderstands and consequently underserves men. Dr. John Barry is a psychologist, the co-founder of the Male Psychology Section of the British Psychological Society, and the co-author of the Perspectives in Male Psychology textbook. Today on the show, John unpacks the issues with thinking that masculinity is purely a social construct, and that men's problems grow out of their power and privilege, and how these issues prevent men from getting the help they need. In the second half of our conversation, we discuss the surprising origin of the idea of toxic masculinity, what really defines masculinity, and what effect internalizing a negative or positive view of masculinity has on men. We end our conversation with what works for men's mental health and well-being if you don't want or need to go to therapy, and what you should look for in a therapist if you do. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is slash psych. All right, John Barry, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you, Brett. Thanks for inviting me. So you are a psychologist and an associate fellow at the British Psychological Society, and you have spent a lot of your time, your academic career, researching and writing about male psychology. You co-authored a book on male psychology called Perspectives in Male Psychology. You also founded an organization called The Center for male psychology. I'm curious, how did your career end up focusing on male psychology? What What's going on there? Right. Okay. Good question. Because I, I did start off focusing on uh, women's mental health. And so I did my PhD and uh, I did a lot of research. In fact, I've got a book on uh, the psychological aspects of PCOS, which is coming out in a German translation in a couple of months time. But so my, my early career was looking at that. I mean, that it kind of overlaps a little bit with the male psychology in that um, polycystic ovary syndrome is a condition characterized by elevated testosterone levels in women. So I learned a lot about the physiology and the psychobiology of testosterone. And the way it affects women is basically, in a lot of ways, the inverse of the way it impacts men. So it's a slightly strange indirect route into male psychology. In fact, that wasn't really the thing that got me into male psychology. It was more sort of personal thing of over the years, just over the years, noticing that within the field of psychology and within the mainstream media and social media, 
people seem to to talk a lot about issues as they impacted women and uh, they didn't really seem to talk about issues impacting men and at first i just thought this was kind of like interesting or you know maybe i was missing the parts of the program that talked about you know male suicide and things like that but then i just i kind of finally got a bit frustrated with this and so like really what's going on i mean it's this this something the major problems that are impacting men and boys like for decades we like since the late 80s we've seen in the uk boys falling behind girls in education and and these were things that were not discussed you really had to hunt around for this sort of data and sometimes the data is in plain view like you know 75% of suicides are male i mean that's you know similar in a lot of countries but and you can find the data there that will tell you that but there seems to be or at least there hasn't been very much interest until very recently in these facts and uh, so I, I just started becoming like increasingly bewildered and then frustrated that nothing seemed to be happening so my route into male psychology was really just this kind of angst that nothing like those major problems facing men and therefore society unresolved big unresolved mental health issues big unresolved well-being issues that were going to affect men you know boys growing up and therefore affect everybody if they're unresolved they're going to become everybody's problem and nobody seemed to be doing anything so it's just one of these things where you end up thinking well you know someone's got to do something and then actually i was very lucky to run into uh, consultant clinical psychology Martin Seeger, who had a letter published in the Psychologist magazine, which is the trade magazine for the British Psychological Society, and he was saying he was like ahead of me, and he's saying, "Look, we need to have a a special section of the British Psychological Society dedicated to men's mental health." And I just thought, "Yes, you're absolutely right, brilliant. I got to get in touch with this guy." So we got that was in. Um, late 2010 and uh, we haven't looked back since then so together with martin and, and a few other people who put a lot of work into campaigning for kind of making a case for the british psychological society having a special section or division as i think you call them in the apa for male psychology it took us about eight years to do that and we had some people who campaigned against us doing that people who thought that uh, men are already privileged enough so we don't want to give them this extra privilege of having a special section of the British Psychological Society which uh, you know obviously I don't agree with that point of view but some people do so but eventually we got this section and yeah so a, a strange route in a way I hope other people's route into male psychology is a bit easier than mine was Brett. No so yeah you make a good point I think a lot of people understand that the boys and men, there's a problem there. You hear the reports or read the articles about, you know, boys falling behind in school. Most criminals are men. You have men and younger men dropping out of the workforce, not working. And then there's the statistics you see about, you know, deaths of despair, suicide, mostly men. That is a problem for. But then one of the points you're trying to make with the work you're doing is that psychologists are able to point these things out. We can see these, these statistics, but the solutions offered aren't often very useful. We've known about this stuff for decades, but it seems like things have gotten better. And one thing you talk about in the textbook, uh, Perspectives in Male Psychology, you talk about the APA, for example. This is the American Psychological Association. Back in 2018, they came out with some guidelines on how to treat and help mental health issues in boys and men. And it made a big splash. I remember when this came out. And then you talk about there's some good stuff in there, in the guidelines, but then some of the guidelines, they're not great. And they could potentially backfire and be counterproductive. 
So let's start with the good. Like, what are some of the good lo- guidelines in this APA thing that you think are useful? And then maybe we can talk about what are, what are the ones that you don't think are particularly useful. Yeah. So there's some of it is fine. I mean, and stuff that I think is pretty good. Uh, guideline nine on doing male friendly therapy, or what what I would describe as male friendly therapy, and this is, I think, all very good advice. I mean, things like not necessarily rushing men into talking about their feelings, but uh, you know maybe focusing more on what you might call as more easy entry type stuff. And um, so, you know, cognitive behavioral things are often easier. And I think that there's a lot of what was written there, I think is very valid. Unfortunately, I think it's uh, the case with some things in life that you can have something that's very good, but no matter how good it is, it's going to be spoiled if it's done in the wrong sort of spirit. And so guidelines one and three of this particular set of guidelines were, I think, so wide of the mark, I think they made it hard for anything else to really survive it. So guideline one was said that masculinity is basically a social construct. In other words, uh, men's sense of themselves and what, what it's like to be a man and how they should behave. It's all purely a product of what they learn from the environment around them. Like, you know, things like your parents or schools, your media, traditions and different cultures. And there is definitely truth to that. I mean, there is no doubt there is an influence of the environment on our sense of ourselves. But you could ask a question like, well, how, how do these traditions, how do these values come about and how, you know, how have they lasted for so long? How come they seem to be kind of fair, at root fairly similar across so many different cultures throughout history and around the world? And, you know, some people you know, argue about differences, you know, in, in expression of masculinity in different cultures. There's actually not that much difference. So depending on how you, how much of a big of a deal you make of particular points, I think like in general, for example, there's um, a very large study looking at characteristics of cognition and behavior in men and women all around the world. And, you know, huge study. And I found basically that the kinds of differences that you see between men and women in these different traits and cognitions, behaviors, map very nicely onto what we think of as being traditional masculinity and traditional femininity. So, for example, men tend to, I mean, not all, that's very flattering to, to, to men either. I mean, men around the world seem to be, uh, score higher on aggression. Um, they score higher on, on more interest in sports, especially team sports less interest in going to spend a lot of time in school. Unfortunately, we can see that. So, you know, it's not all kind of good news, but there's definitely what we think about masculinity seems to to have a common thread around the world, despite it being expressed differently in some different ways. So the idea that it's just a social construct, I think is misleading. And uh, it's important. I mean, you know, psychology is a science. I mean, it's a social science. It has to, to, I think, to try and be evidence-based in whatever way it can be. And I think whatever types of therapies or techniques or theories that we have need to be developed from evidence and not from ideology. And I think, unfortunately, some of what we see from coming from the media and spoken a lot about men's issues and masculinity is not based on evidence, but based on, on ideas, some of them from sociology. And these are not evidence-based ideas. I mean, they fall apart if you start to examine them. And I'm not 
an essentialist in any sort of way. I mean, I completely agree that masculinity is a product of nurture, but there's also some nature there. So there's some evolved differences, you know, based around reproduction that have knock-on effects on the way that we choose to live our lives. And also, I mean, there's the obvious thing of testosterone then too. You know, a male fetus gestating over the nine months will be exposed to a massive amount of testosterone. There's a testosterone surge at, at 13 weeks prenatally. And this causes all sorts of changes to, to the fetus, some of which are only then seen at puberty when you have another massive surge. And you have a similar, like we all know that, that at, in adolescence, boys experience a massive amount of testosterone. And it, it kind of changes their bodies in all sorts of different ways. Their voice deepens, and they get acne, and they become hairier. They develop muscles. And all of these things are programmed from their prenatal life. In that fetus, the levels that it experiences then are as high as those experienced in adolescent boys. So there's a huge amount of nature or biology going on there. And of course, if you're somebody who happens to find themselves being bigger and stronger than other people around you, it's probably going to affect the way that you feel and behave. So just on a very day-to-day level. You know, there's lots of reasons to think that people who are exposed to testosterone and who therefore have, you know, larger muscle mass, they're they're actually physically taller, the bone structure is denser, they have larger jaws, they are better able at certain types of uh, kind of explosive type activities and exercises and sports. Basically, you could say, well, they're, they're combat ready, like these are the guys who are designed to be protecting people to be say defending communities to be uh, also to to do maybe kind of heavier type lifting type jobs and things like that i mean some of the things that of course i mean are a bit problematic if you try and map them onto to job opportunities today but nonetheless I mean, it, it, there's a lot of biology and if the thing is if you if you presume that the only difference between men and women is what they're taught to think about themselves as men or women and there's no there's like things like reproduction human reproduction makes no difference i mean that that's really uh you know i think and the thing is most people most you know everyday people get that i mean they, they get that there's differences between men and women and this is something that i've learned over the years of being involved in male psychology which is about 12 or 13 years now is that people outside of academia seem to understand male psychology a lot better than lots of of academics do. So we're in a strange situation where the education that we have for academics actually, I think, obscures the reality of things like gender differences, which become very important then if you're trying to understand why there might be more male suicides than female suicides, or why men might turn to substance abuse, which again is one of the things that we see around the world men tend to engage in substance abuse more than women do. If we want to try and understand them, we have to understand that that there's differences between men and women on these things, and we have to examine why that is, and then how we can use that information to to help us. But as of a starting point, you at least have to acknowledge that these things exist, or else you're in trouble. So yeah, the first guideline that you think is that causes problems is that masculinity is constructed purely on social, cultural, and contextual norms. It's completely a social construct. But what you're saying yeah. is that, no, there's a biological component. If you ignore the biology part, then you're going to have a hard time actually 
helping points. Because if your assumption is, well, if it's a social construct, if you can just talk to these guys and they can unlearn those things, then they can change. Exactly. And you're saying, no, it's going to be harder than that because there's a biological component under there that's, you can't finagle like that. You can't. And it seems that men tend to be like voting with their feet when it comes to therapy. So in terms of trying to help men with their emotional, psychological issues, a lot of men don't seem to be interested in talking about their feelings in the same sort of way that women do. And men can benefit from talking about their feelings, but it's not the first thing that they necessarily want to do. And there might be all sorts of, again, evolved reasons for this that make sense and that we might want to respect a bit more than we tend to. Like people to often just blame men for not going to therapy and say, well, you know, it's, it's their own fault then if they, if they kind of fall off the rails. They should have just kind of just rejected these silly masculine ideas about being tough and stoical and just gone on and talked about the feelings to this therapist. You know, there might be all sorts of reasons why men might tend to not want to talk about the feelings so much as, as women do. And it could be that if you've evolved to be in situations that might be putting you at risk or danger, or even just uh, things like hunting, for example, if the men are going out hunting because they've got better, like maybe stronger kind of throwing arms for throwing spears at animals or whatever. They've got better mental rotation ability because testosterone's programmed their mind in that way so they're better able to understand what happens when you, you're kind of throwing a stone or a spear at something. Well, then it might be also that they have to develop a way of staying quiet if they're stalking prey and even under kind of stressful situations, uh, remain quiet so that they don't, say, startle whatever it is that they're, they're trying to hunt or you know, upset people around them too. If, if, say, you're supposed to be defending the community and, you know, you don't necessarily want to say to the guy next to you who's also there defending the community that how scared you feel and that you're worried you might die. I mean, that's, you know, probably going to make everyone just fall apart. So you probably have to, it just kind of makes sense. I mean, this, you know, this is speculation, but it kind of makes sense that men would evolve reasons for not expressing their feelings or being so keen to express their feelings as much as women do. I think it's important that men do, but I think we have to respect the fact that they might not. There's one other point that I think is important about this whole thing about stoicism, one of the most successful types of therapy, rational mode of behavior therapy, is based on the philosophy of stoicism. And, uh, you know, if stoicism is so bad for you, well, how come it's such a successful therapy? And of course, there's a difference between just not talking about your feelings and and processing your feelings in the way that you do with rational mode of behavior therapy. But it just speaks to the idea that stoicism is not as 100% bad as uh, it's made out to be often. What was the other guideline you had some problems with? Yeah. So guideline three, which seems to cast men as being the benefactors in patriarchy. And it seems to make the assumption that the United States of these times is a patriarchy, which I mean, you, you could stretch your imagination and think, okay, so there's some ways in which men seem to have uh, benefits that women don't have. I mean, the most obvious being there's more men in kind of high-paying jobs than there are women. But then again, there are other reasons for that. I mean, if you give it a little bit of thought, like if you're a woman, you reach you know a point in your life for a lot of women when they want to have a family. And it's hard to keep a career going successfully. You know, I mean, like some Men work absolutely terrifying hours to make it to the top of their career or even close to the top of their career or even just survive in a lot of cases. But like to get to the top, it, it's 
It's not easy. It's not handed to you on a plate. And if you want to have a family, that's not easy either. To be a mother, to to carry children through pregnancy, then to breastfeed them or to take care of them, you know, even if they're going to a nursery for a lot of time, this, children take a huge amount of, of time. And I think it's fair to say that women tend to be inclined, a lot of women at least anyway, inclined to want to do that more so than men. I don't think that's a, a bad thing. I mean, I think we're fairly sort of obvious reasons why you might expect that women might be predisposed to that a bit more based on biology. But the idea that you live in a patriarchy and the evidence of this is that men on average are earning more than women, I think is, I mean, it's kind of foolish. Uh, there's other things too, you know, the idea that men's relationships with women are based on power and control and that things like domestic violence are caused by this patriarchal need to express control and power over your wife and family and other people around you. I mean, as a psychologist, in order to treat a problem, you have to understand what the problem is, what's causing the problem. And for people, like generally speaking, for men and women engaging in domestic violence, it's not just men engaging in domestic violence, but like men and women engage in violence and other types of abuse. And a lot of this is due to problems that have developed in childhood. So like very often it will be impulse control issues that have developed through maybe having had distressing experiences as a child, maybe experiencing abuse as a child, the substance control issues that often happen there. But these things aren't about power and control. These are usually somebody who's got no real control over their own impulses. And so they kind of act out. This is something that men often do that kind of women tend to more on average. And whenever we talk about differences between men and women, it's always on average. Like you can't say that all men are like this and all women are like that. But on average, uh, men will tend to act out their issues, their psychological issues more than women do, which isn't a good thing uh, and definitely something that should be worked on. But if you try and work on that type of issue, like a man not being able to control his impulses and treat that as if it's some manifestation of patriarchy. It's, you know, it's no wonder the things like the Duluth model of perpetrator change don't tend to work. I mean, they, they get funded and they seem to sort of have been popular enough in various parts of the world for a long time. But the evidence is that they don't work that well. We should. I mean, the thing is, even talking about patriarchy or masculinity. I, I think these are are not the central issues that psychologists should be talking about. I mean, these are ideas in sociology. Sociologists don't tend to be trying to treat men's mental health issues. I mean, I, I think psychologists should be focusing on what we know. Like for years, people have been struggling to make psychology an evidence-based discipline. And I think we should just stick to that, stick to that, forget the supposition, the ideology, and really focus on the facts, really, and try and get focused on what's going to help people at the end of the day. So, yeah, okay, guideline one, masculinity is just a social construct. That can get in the way of helping boys and men because the idea is, well, you can just teach them how to not do those things, right? You can help them ignore the social construct and create a new social construct, but you're ignoring biology. And so you might not actually be going to the core issue. And then guideline three, which is the idea that males in general experience more power privilege than girls and women. How does that get in the way of helping boys and men? I guess, does it if they're, if men do have a problem, like they're feeling bad, like, well, what's wrong with me? I, I should be 
doing well because I'm a man, right? I'm privileged. So something's, I just got to suck it up. And then they don't, do they not just go get help because of that? What, what do you think the issue, like how does that guideline three possibly prevent men from getting the help they need? Well, they might sense that, and this is one of the things about the, the APA guidelines have become so prominent in such a talking about. I mean, men for years, I've been hearing guys saying that they don't want to go to a marriage guidance therapist because they don't think that they understand men. They don't think that they're going to get a kind of fair hearing. And I think the same sort of thing. If a man thinks that he's going to see a therapist who thinks that all his problems are going to be his fault because he's a privileged product of patriarchy, I think that that will, for some men, I mean, for some men who believe in that sort of idea, well, they may well go along and find that they do get some sort of relief from that. But I would think that the average man might just, you know, more so than before, just think, well, you know, maybe therapy's not for me. And then where does that leave them? That this is this is the issue that I have. We should be more welcoming of men. We should be trying to find out what do men want from therapy? What you know, what kind of things, how do they like to deal with their problems? What are the most effective things that we can use? And not doing things that are just demonizing men basically casting men in a negative light making them making it seem as if they're the like basically what's you know some people call victim blaming you know telling them that their problems are due to themselves i mean that's not going to entice somebody into a therapy room i don't think no so i get a lot of books sent to me about male psychology like books to help men and whatever and most of them have that sort of apa idea that masculinity is essentially like masculinity, it's a deficiency essentially, right? It's a problem to be solved. And I read these things like, I just, this doesn't, I don't think this is going to resonate with guys. I don't think it's helpful. Absolutely. I mean, why would it? Yeah. You know? We're going to take a quick break for your word from our sponsors. Wedding season is coming up. And if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made-to-measure suit. Suits start at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a longtime podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. A lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the United States? You can grow lemon, avocado, olive, or fig trees inside your home on top of the wide variety of houseplants available. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee, they offer a free plant consultation forever. So I use Fast Growing Trees to order not an indoor tree, but an outdoor tree. There is an oak tree that was in our front yard that died a few years ago due to heat stress. Had to cut it down. There's been a blank spot that I've wanted to put another tree there. I wanted a maple tree that turned bright red during the fall. 
And I went on fast growing trees, found the tree that fit the criteria that I was looking for, turns bright red. It's a maple tree that turns bright red in the fall. So if you want to try fast growing trees right now, they have some of the best deals online, like up to half off on select plants and listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when they use code manliness at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at fastgrowingtrees.com using code manliness at checkout. Fastgrowingtrees.com code manliness offers valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. Daylight saving time is starting up again. The goal of this is to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting our clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day, but if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There is only one way to do that. ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com manliness. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to help you find qualified candidates. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you can reach more of the right people. ZipRecruiter smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. All right, if you have a family, then you need to get term life insurance to protect them. It's one of the smartest financial decisions you can make, and the start of the new year is the perfect time to get it done so you can focus on whatever else the year has in store for you. Fabric by Gerber Life was designed by parents for parents to help you get a high-quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. Fabric has flexible policies that fit your family and your budget with quality policies like a million dollars in coverage for less than a dollar a day. There's no risk to apply. They have a 30-day money-back guarantee and you can cancel at any time. I remember when I was a new dad, I had a lot of thoughts going through my head. One of them was, how can I take care of my family when I'm gone, if something happens to me? Well, it's one of the first things I did. I got term life insurance, one of the best decisions I made. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash manliness. That's meetfabric.com slash manliness. M-E-E-T fabric.com slash manliness. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company, not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. And now back to the show. Well, yeah, this this brings up this whole idea that you know of toxic masculinity that you hear a lot about these days. And I think it's interesting. You, you do um you kind of do a deep dive of the the origins of this phrase. I remember mm-hmm. the first time I heard it is probably 2010, 2011. But now it's everywhere. Where did this idea of toxic masculinity even come from? And is there any research that backs up the claim that masculinity is toxic? Okay, so the term itself, surprisingly, it came from the men's movement of around the 80s or 90s. There's a big kind of a, a gray area of where exactly who came up with it first. But the mythopoetic movements, you know, the kind of Robert Bly, Iron John type of schools of uh, psychology. And um, the, the idea has some, some merit for definite. The idea was that in order for a young man to successfully change from boyhood to adulthood and become a useful member of his tribe or community, um, he had to go through some initiation ceremonies with the men of the, the tribe. 
And cities might be a bit arduous and they wouldn't be very popular with a lot of people today. But what they would do, they would give that boy a sense of belonging, having a purpose, being part of a community. And the crucial thing, if they didn't go through this process, that their masculinity would become toxic. They Instead of focusing on helping the community, they, w- they would end up, you know, self-indulgent. They would en- end up being selfish and having disregard for others, not be thinking about the long-term goals of the community or themselves, not thinking about what's good for them in the future, just short-term thinking. And they described this as being then a kind of a toxic masculinity. They would, the short-terms, they, they would be more aggressive and things like that. So, so there is something to that. And I think if we look at the kinds of behaviors that get mislabeled as toxic masculinity, because it, it just gets used so widely now. So any examples of behavior by men that is abhorrent or distasteful gets called toxic masculinity. But if you look at some of the kind of, you know, for example, let's say uh, delinquent behaviors that, that you see, often they come from people, men, who have not had the guidance of a father in the home. And, you know, lots of kids don't have a dad in the home. They turn out to be brilliant. But if you just look at the stats, it seems that for example, most of the men in prison, I mean, like I think Warren Farrell described prisons as being institutes of dad deprivation. I think that's what he called them. It's like, so people who are deprived of having a uh, kind of loving, guiding father who will help to, you know, boys especially can be difficult, girls can be difficult too, but growing up, but, you know, boys often need a kind of a firm guiding hand of someone who's, who loves them and will respect them, protect them, protect them from themselves in a lot of ways too. But and if you don't have that, you can go off the rails. It's a bit too easy just to, boys, you know, tend to take risks and, you know, try at things, push the boundaries. It's not an unhealthy thing to, to do these things, but you can get into trouble easily and then maybe not know what to do. And if you don't have a love and caring father around, I mean, it can just lead to, to people going off into all sorts of dead ends and bad routes for themselves. So there is something to that idea of toxic masculinity, but I think it really only is useful when applied properly in a therapeutic setting. And this sort of very widespread media sort of demonization, kind of lazy thinking is not good. And I think it's not good mainly because, again, it obscures what the actual problem is. It puts the blame on masculinity rather than putting the blame on on what you could call a lack of masculinity in that boy's life, the lack of having the guidance of a, a loving father in their life. So when you misspecify a problem like that, I think it's not only just wrong, it demonizes boys, gives them a bad sense of themselves, and it doesn't help address the problem. In a lot of ways, you can understand why people would just kind of fall back on terms like toxic masculinity because to be fair if if a man does something that is horrible abusive abhorrent our natural reaction is not to be empathic towards them it's not to to kind of want to help them or not to try and understand them you just they're repulsive and you just want them to be punished basically but again for as a psychologist or or for any therapist um, you know you have to find out what has caused that problem. And you don't get to that by just being freaked out by what they've done or just kind of saying, oh, that's due to masculinity. You know, that's missing the point. It won't help that person. It won't help them to recover and become, you know, beneficial member of the community. It's 
just a dead end. I just hate to see this happening. We have so much of this going on where people are, especially in psychology, where people bark up the wrong tree and it doesn't help. Well, we've been talking about masculinity, but maybe we should define it. How do you define masculinity? Because I know you know, sociologists have their different definitions of masculinity. So I know there, there's this idea of the man box, right? <laughs> so uh, yeah. it's basically there's this idea that there's these seven pillars of masculinity, right? Mm-hmm. And they're rigid. Mm-hmm. And if you're inside the man box, you're going to be depressed and suicidal. And so mm-hmm. they define masculinity as acting tough, being homophobic, being aggressive and controlling towards uh, men and women, et cetera. And I, I mean, okay, that's one definition. But like when you look at the research across you know, meta-analysis, cross-cultural studies, how do you define masculinity? Well, just to say about these kind of more popular recent definitions of masculinity, they tend to be based on research looking at quite young samples, so usually college-age men. And, you know, if you think about young men, they're not really representative of the behaviors and the thoughts and the attitudes of men like 10 years later. So when you're 20, you're a lot different than when you're 30. Like basically you're more mature when you're 30 and, and you know, for the rest of your life, you're never like that kind of young, risk-taking, reckless person who's pushing the boundaries and trying to find out what the extent is of what they can do in their lives. So when you base your ideas about masculinity on these samples you get a skewed idea you get a a snapshot of somebody at their worst basically well in in many ways and not something that generalizes to men of other ages and this is part of the problem you're getting generalizations from the worst types of behavior like in the case of toxic masculinity this gets generalized like all men all boys are supposed to be like this or at least potentially like this if they're not kept tightly controlled so there's that problem with these definitions of masculinity. And by the way, there's no end of research that will kind of use these definitions and it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Like you keep asking the same questions in the same way, using the same definitions of masculinity and with the same young samples, like, you know, the kind of college age samples, you get the same sorts of answers and you never get out of that loop. It's been described as a paradigm fixation that, uh, that some research programs seem to have. But in general, though, like and traditionally, and uh, and up until very recently, I think this was the case that uh, masculinity was defined by terms such as being competitive, uh, being aggressive, being in control, and uh, you know, uh, Martin Seegers, uh, with my help, developed um, psychometric scales looking at masculinity, and we found that the things that tend to fit men quite well is the ideas, uh, th- uh, three ideas basically, that they're protectors of others like their family, their providers for their family, their fighters and winners. So they're kind of out there trying to make a living, bring home the bacon, you know, whatever way you want to put it. And also having mastery and control over their feelings. So that part of being masculine is not just saying how you feel off the top of your head to whoever, you you know, you, you keep it under wraps to a large degree and there's a time and a place. And I think it's important. I mean, I haven't really said so much about it, but it's important that that men do feel that they have a place to go to, that they can feel comfortable at, about saying what they feel. You know, unfortunately, I, th- I think a lot of men know that that a lot of stuff that they say, I mean, that is is deemed beyond the pale. Like, you know, you get in some uh, marriages, you get men who don't 
you know, talk to the worst because they know that they're just going to get criticized for it. So they just, you know, it's a yes dear type of situation. I mean, we have this, I mean, it's, uh, I just found out that in Germany, they've got this new situation where if people criticize gender studies or feminism, they can be, there's a hotline they can be reported to, you know, so there's things that if you feel very strongly, no matter how strongly about a particular thing, you can't talk about it because you get, if you're in Germany, you can get reported to the hotline, you know, and socially it's the same sort of thing. You can get cancelled for saying certain things. So, you know, men know this. So I think it is important that we do have places that men can go to that they know that whatever they say is not going to be misinterpreted as being some aspect of patriarchy or, you know, they're not going to be put in some sort of man box that's about their masculinity being a negative thing. They need to go, they just, as again, I mean, I'm kind of saying the same thing, but as before, you know, we just, psychologists need to be psychologists. Like we need to get back to being you know, person-centered, empathic, meeting people where they're at, understanding the, the world from their perspective, not imposing our own viewpoints on them, kind of listening to them and trying to lead them forward in a way that's going to be helpful for them. Well, yeah, you mentioned, okay, so those ideas of what it means to be masculine that you found across cultures, being competitive, feeling a sense of competency, mastery, being a protector and provider for your family. There's a book, David Gilmore's Manhood in the Making, he was an anthropologist. This book was published a couple decades ago. But he did a cross-cultural analysis, right? Looked at all these different anthropological studies, and he found the same thing. Across cultures, across time, generally, you find the same definition of what masculinity means, and it's to be a protector, procreator, provider. And like every culture is going to, it's going to manifest differently because every culture is different, but you're going to see that same universal uh, across and those can be, I think, depending on how they manifest themselves, they can be positive or negative. I think it's it's good that men want to take care of their families and protect them and be competent because that can give us all sorts of great things. But they can also be used for bad things. Absolutely, it means you can take anything and turn it into a negative. And it's also true for even, and this is one of the tenets of rational mode of behavior therapy that's based on stoicism. That I mentioned earlier, one of the ideas is that. Any idea can be okay, but if you believe it too rigidly or want things to happen in too rigid a way, it will cause you to be anxious, depressed, angry, all sorts of different things. Uh, so, for example, if applying it to masculinity, you might say that, you know, I want to be able to control my feelings. Like I said, I want to be able to go to a public speaking event and not show that I'm very anxious about doing it. Loads of people are anxious about public speaking. But if you say to yourself, well, you know, I absolutely can't show any fear. Well, this rigid way of framing that idea, like saying, I absolutely can't, I shouldn't, I must not. This itself, this rigidity will, will exacerbate the fear and make other sorts of negative feelings come in very likely too. So masculinity can be entirely benign. And I, I, I would say like there's plenty of evidence of how masculinity can be a very productive thing and something that we shouldn't want to get rid of at all and shouldn't I think, uh, misdefine or, or misspecify and, and create a sort of a foul smell around. I, th I think we ought to be much more interested in how we can use masculinity as, as a positive force. And I, th I think that's 
again, if we have to, as psychologists, refer to masculinity at all, we should really think about, well, how can we harness those positive aspects of masculinity and make them work for men, going to help them to improve their psychological, emotional lives, make them better people to be around? Yeah, I've always thought of masculinity as an energy. It's this neutral force that can be directed for either good or bad. And like how it's directed depends on the, the cultural context a man finds himself in. So this makes me think of another question. Has there been any research done on the effect that this idea of toxic masculinity has on men, right? So let's say, you know, a man internalizes this idea of toxic masculinity because he's hearing it all the time. How does that affect him? And then like the flip side of that would be what happens when a man has a positive view of masculinity? How does that affect him? I was um, on a, a talk show about three years ago, four years ago, and uh, I was asked a similar question. And I was sitting there answering, saying, well, you know, it's it's amazing. It's such an important issue, and but like the, no one has done any research on this. And I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, I'm a researcher. Why don't I do some research on this? So I did. Uh, so I did a kind of like a pilot study. I asked... Uh, it was only a small sample, like 250-odd people, the questions along the lines of like whether they thought that boys would be negatively impacted by hearing ideas about toxic masculinity being talked about in the media or random like that. And I found that 85% of the participants said that they thought that it, there would be a negative impact on boys. So I thought, okay, so this is, I'm not the only person who's making this this wild assumption that some people might think that that could have a negative impact. I did another piece of research uh, recently. It's just been accepted for publication in the International Journal of Health Sciences, which I'm very happy about. And I looked at 2,000 men in the UK and 2,000 men in Germany. And I asked them various different questions and didn't focus on masculinity. Basically, trying to find out what were the different things about their lives or the way that they thought about things or even demographic things that uh, were related to how happy they were, basically their mental well-being. And we threw in a few questions about masculinity and we found that some of these grouped together as positive ideas about masculinity, such as masculinity helps me to be a better provider for my family. And Negative. Uh, there was another cluster of items that that coalesces uh, kind of a negative sense of masculinity. So men thinking that masculinity made them more aggressive towards women, made them want to feel violent towards women. And what we found was that th- the more that people thought that masculinity made them feel violent towards women, or made them even things like less likely to recycle, all these things, when they thought masculinity was having this negative impact on their behaviour, this was quite strongly correlated to their mental well-being being lower. So it seems that this negative view, I mean, I'm speculating here because we didn't test where these men got this idea from about masculinity, although you might not have to speculate too much, but it seemed that having these ideas was bad for your mental health. Conversely, the men who thought that masculinity made them better providers for the family, made them better, made them more likely to want to protect women. That was another thing. These men had better mental health. So this is, we have this kind of parallel thing going on. The men who think that masculinity is bad, makes them behave in bad ways, th- their mental health is worse. And so I'm quite worried that a lot of this talk about toxic masculinity that we've been exposed to for a while now is having a negative impact. And this, th- these were men. I mean, these were adult men of all ages. And you just think about 
the impact on children growing up. This is one thing that I think we should be very concerned about because it's going to affect people differently and it's probably not a lot of it is going to be a good impact on children. So I really worry about that because you're talking about stuff that that could take a, a long time, if ever, for guys to get over. So you've done a lot of research and a lot of writing about trying to figure out what actually works in helping men and boys with their mental health. Because I think the typical response, if a guy's having a problem, there's this, a lot of encouragement to, you need to go talk about your feelings with a therapist. And mm-hmm. you said throughout this conversation, you talk about in the book, for some men, that's exactly what they need to do. It works for them. But for a lot of men, it doesn't. And it's not because something's wrong with them. It's just, maybe that's just the way they're, they're wired. So generally, again, this is going to be every guy's different. Generally, like, what have you found that actually works in helping boys and men with their mental health? Right. I wish there was more research on this. There is some research, not as much as you would like. So the kinds of things that seem to help men is uh, beyond the therapy room. And I should just say that therapy is important for some conditions. Like if you're, say, have a psychiatric condition, so like some, uh, you know, psychosis, kind of schizophrenia, any of those types of things, it's important that you see a qualified therapist, um, very important. For more reactive type depression, where like you have uh, experienced a life event, so for example, family breakdown, like you become divorced and then you lose touch with your children, you're prevented from seeing your children in many cases. This can be very distressing. And you may well want to go and see a therapist about it. That may well help. But there's other things that guys often do too that are are outside of usual therapy. I mean, it can, and again, I should emphasize that this isn't going to work for everybody who's got a, a serious sort of mental health condition, but you can feel a lot better from just doing everyday activities that you enjoy. So, you know, playing team sports is one thing that there's been some research on. Roger Kingerly over here in the UK um, has found that playing team sport and getting some some sort of mentoring type support afterwards actually is quite beneficial for men who are experiencing non-clinical levels of problems, mental health problems. There's a, been a, some reasonably good research at this point on what's called men's sheds. Uh, Men's sheds is something that started in Australia a couple of decades ago and started out just trying to get men who are socially isolated to just come out and talk to each other a little bit. And what they did was get them to fix garden furniture. So just getting together, fixing garden furniture. And without intending for this to be any sort of solution to mental health issues, they found that that very slowly, over a few weeks or months, men would just have these kind of little conversations, nothing very big, no big kind of dramatic sharing or anything like that. And these seem to really be quite useful in terms of uh, helping with their well-being. And since that time, there's been it's one of these areas that doesn't get a lot of funding. It's not really like men's mental health hasn't traditionally had very much funding. And so there's not been kind of, as a lot of the researchers using kind of ad hoc instruments rather than validated measures. But still, we have now got some evidence that these types of interventions do seem to work. I mean, there's there's governments are now in different countries um, funding men's sheds of various kinds. So it doesn't have to be about garden furniture. It can be about just getting together and doing various little things without it being any kind of, without labeling it as being therapy. And I think a lot of men don't want to go to something that's labeled therapy. And this is one of the things, I mean, although 
therapy can be useful for men, and I wouldn't suggest that it isn't. They get put off in a lot of cases by the idea of talking about their feelings as a way of solving their problems. And I mean, there is research saying, a lot of research at this point, you know, showing that men tend to prefer to deal with their problems by doing something practical to try and fix them. Whereas women, on average, tend to want to talk about their feelings more. Men, ha- I think it's important. There's loads of things that men need to talk about these days. Uh, partly, they're prevented from talking about it. As I mentioned, in Germany, they got the hotline now. I mean, it's, it's, so to a ridiculous degree, men are prevented in some ways from talking about what they really feel about. And I think it's important that they do. But for a lot of men, going playing sports with their friends, fixing a car with their friends, who's hanging out, going fishing, even... And I'm not trying to encourage anyone to drink to excess or anything, but like even there is some evidence that going having a couple of drinks, like a couple of pints of beer with your friends, helps you to kind of just uh, you know feel a bit comfortable, talk about your feelings, talk about what's happening to you a little bit, and that can be you know that can be quite a useful thing. So there's a lot of things that men can do that are happening, and at a grassroots level, there's lots of things that people have started looking at how going to a barber shop where men sit down and might start talking about things, and um, that can be quite useful, or it can be a, quite a useful way of signposting men onto other types of interventions if they're needed. But there's lots of different things that that men can do. But I, you know, I just think I I just wish that that the field of psychology could sort of just pull itself together and just say, okay, men are experiencing these issues. They're not these privileged patriarchs. You know, they're having problems. It's not due to masculinity. Let's get together and just see how what we can do to help these men, these boys to get their lives on track. It's going to be better for everybody. I mean, if, if you don't want to do it for, for men or boys for whatever reason, do it for the community. The community's got that has healthy men and healthy boys. That's going to be a better community. Okay, so instead of necessarily encouraging men to go to therapy by default, what you're saying is we got to meet men where they are. And for a lot of men, they just don't want to you know, dedicate an hour to just talking. But if, you know, so if a guy doesn't want to go to therapy, what they should be doing instead is getting together with other men in groups, doing some sort of activity. And that, I mean, that, that could be like exercise. It could be sitting in a sauna, uh, working on a car, uh, whatever. And so, you know, find a group of men who does that sort of thing regularly. And, you know, like what's going to happen is those activities, it's going to naturally facilitate conversation while you're doing the activity. But then also there's just something therapeutic about doing the thing, right? Exercising feels good. Working on working with your hands feels good. That could help a lot of men. And then when, let's say a guy does decide to go to therapy, I think what you're saying, what the research suggests and what you're arguing in your work is that make it guy friendly. So most guys, they're all about solving a problem. So they might go to a therapist like, look, I have a problem with my anger. What can I do about it? They don't want to spend an hour like going through their childhood and trying to figure out the source or like, there's like, okay, I have this issue. What can I do? Like, give me something I can do to, to start working on this now. And that can be a helpful way to reach men. Absolutely. And of course it can lead, uh, as others have uh, pointed out, it can lead to other stuff that's going to, I mean, basically if, if you're problems are rooted in childhood you will need to deal with them in some sort of way but you can deal with it in a practical way too or a way that's framed as being practical rather than framed as being let's do you know an hour a week for the next two years talking about you know how you feel about your mum and dad you know for a lot of guys it's just not what they want to do so i think we have to yeah we have to, to to some degree meet people where they're at give them something of what they want i think where we have to go to, I think, 
with a lot of this is making guys realize that when they go to whoever they go to, that they're not going to be judged out of hand and kind of misunderstood. I think empathy is the key for all this. So like whether it's a shed or whether it's CBT or no matter what you're talking about, like what way you're doing your therapy, empathy is the cornerstone of it all. I mean, for if you look at research on therapies to see how, like what's the most important aspect of a therapy? Is it is it the modality that, you know, what is it about sharing feelings or discussing ideas, whatever it is. The, the key thing is the therapeutic alliance. Like in other words, the rapport that you have with your client or with your therapist, you know, that's the cornerstone of it. And I, my fear is that you're going to just, we've already lost so many men to just not even wanting to begin to develop any therapeutic alliance with any therapist because they've been frightened off already. I think that research is really interesting. You know, it really doesn't matter what kind of therapy you choose. It's effective if you feel like you have a good rapport with your therapist. Because I mean, and really at the end of the day, I think a lot of people, they just need someone to talk to, right? They want to feel understood and listened to. So look for a therapist you feel comfortable with, someone who doesn't seem to be judging you. You know, maybe you don't get the vibe from them that they think your masculinity is a problem that needs to be changed. And you can feel like you can open up to them. And, you know, that's the most important thing. Well, well John, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about your work? Right. So there's a couple of things. So you, for people in general, and also for therapists of various kinds, for psychologists, for people working in charities that might be helping men, there's the Center for Male Psychology. Now, this is something that we set up about three years ago now. We've got various sources of information on there. We have a magazine, the Male Psychology magazine. We also have a new online course, which I hope addresses a lot of the gap that we have in people's understanding of men's mental health issues and uh, and also things around sex and gender. There's a lot of misunderstandings there too. So we address these issues and we've got it in a nice package. We've got like five hours of lectures and videos and this is approved by the British Psychological Society for continuing professional development. So it's a kind of a, you know, a good standard, but it's also made accessible. So it's something that I've learned is really important. When you're talking about male psychology, very often you're talking to the general public who are wondering about, you know, the source of help, what they can do, how they can best understand things. And often the general public already have quite a good understanding so that they will really enjoy engaging in this sort of higher level kind of academic, but digestible and easy to understand format that we have. So if you're, if say, if you're working with men, you can think about how the, the various information that you're receiving in the CPD course how that impacts your day-to-day work with men. Like, should you be doing something differently? Have you been thinking about things in too narrow a way? Or if you're, say, a, a woman who's, you know, married to somebody and you don't really understand that maybe have moods or behaviors, you can reflect on how those might be understandable and, you know, easier to deal with if you engage with them in a different sort of way. So we, we're hoping that we get a lot of people who, really benefit from this new course that we've got. All right. Well, John Barry, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Brett, for asking me. My guest here is Dr. John Barry. He's the co-author of the book, Perspectives in Male Psychology. It's available on amazon.com. You can find more information about his work at his website, johnbarrypsychologist.com. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash psych. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM podcast. 
Every week, Kate and I work hard to distill interesting and actual insights from the authors and leaders in a variety of fields and present them in an engaging, fluff and filler-free episode that comes in under an hour. If you get something out of the show, please consider taking a minute to leave a review for it. It helps more people discover the AOM podcast, and we greatly appreciate it. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the AOM podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code MANLYS at checkout for a free month trial. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android iOS, and you can start enjoying ad-free episodes of the AOM podcast. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, this is Brett McKay. Remind you to listen to the AOM podcast, but put what you've heard into action. mom first things first thank you it's my one year anniversary of my decision to say yes i need help and yes i choose me and that's the miracle i'm lucky that the strongest person i know is my own mother love you mom maxwell be that strong person who makes the difference if your loved one is struggling with drugs and alcohol reach out to karen for a different kind of addiction treatment visit caron.org/lost Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.